Okay, folks, let's get started. It's a pleasure to welcome uh, Clara Fernandez, who all of you know because she's been working with this and studied here. Uh, and Clara really embodies the, the spirit of CMS in the sense of working across theater, film, radio, and of course, uh, above all, uh, games. She did her master's here and she did a PhD in digital media at Georgia Tech. Uh, she's been, she's someone who's, who's thinking about games is deeply informed by her production of games and uh, especially games like Simon and Rosemary have not only been learning experiences and theoretical ex sort of uh, proof grounds for, for Clara's theoretical work, but they've also been award winners, have been recognized internationally. Um, uh, she's been teaching a lot of our courses and I see some, some folks who've had her in class here as well. Um, so without further ado, Clara, welcome. Thanks. Okay, I'm going to stand up because I like doing my little dance while I'm talking. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to talk about um, performance because that's basically what I do and the, the grounding of my, uh, of my work. Come on. Yes. Okay. Wow, that worked too well. Uh, so yes, you know who I am. I come from English studies in Madrid. I uh, was a, a student in CMS. I went to Georgia Tech to do my PhD, and then I've been working in um, Gambit for the last five years, since the beginning. Um, but you already know that. Uh, my work, I uh, qualify as game design research. Uh, what I do is studying how games work, uh, what's been done before, how can we improve it. Uh, and um, part of what I'm going to talk about today is a kind of high level, this is the beginning of a new cycle of research. Uh, is basically the typical thing that you do when you, when you want to have a plan for uh, research in, in the next several years. So this is basically the foundation of what I want to do uh, in my next uh, cycle of research. Um, and again, you know, game design research is a, still a uh, discipline that we're defining as we go because um, it's, it's all new. We're still figuring out what game studies are and game design research is a very highly interdisciplinary um, and highly um, still nebulous discipline. Um, so a brief outline of what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, first, I'm going to give a refresher of what, you know, how I understand video games as performance activities. Uh, and then I'm going to focus on one of the qualities of performance that is going to be the area uh, of my next work, which is performance spaces and how they work. Um, the concept of indexical storytelling is what I consider my contribution uh, to the theoretical uh, ground of game studies and also is going to be my tool for my next work. Um, I'm going to give some examples of what uh, has been done before and then how it applies to practice and how it applies to my next work. Uh, and then a bit of a takeaway uh, uh, as a conclusion. Uh, so I just want to <coughs> remind you that almost a year ago, I gave a colloquium that was entitled From Elsinore to Monkey Island. And this was basically the trope that explained where I come from and where I am going as a, as a researcher. Uh, the idea of making parallels between the ghost of Hamlet's father and the ghost pirate LeChuck was basically the metaphor um, that explains that, yes, I'm uh, talking about different media, but I'm also, there's also a lot of things in common from when I was studying Shakespeare and when I was studying, uh, now when I'm studying games. Uh, and basically, in short, um, when I was studying uh, text and performance, uh, I was uh, studying how we make sense of text, how they're constructed. It's not about the text alone, but how uh, the performers themselves are interpreting it and how the audience is making uh, sense of it. 
Um, when I study games, that's what I do. I study what's been done before. How do players engage with it? How are they making sense of it? How can we improve this? You know, this is kind of a bit of the difference. You know, what is the innovation there? Um, so if you want to get a larger uh, a reminder of, of what I said almost a year ago, you can go and listen to the podcast. Uh, but right now I'm going to give you a very short refresher of, um, of what I said then, you know, these, because these are still the foundations of my research. So I consider games text and performance. Um, when I studied Shakespeare, I was focusing on, you know, how does the medium uh, change the text? Uh, how does uh, the interpretation take, change how we the, the, the play, the, the performance, how does it change the text and how we understand it? And in video games, we, I also take uh, video games as a text in performance in that we do have a text, we have the code, we have the rules, but they're not complete until those rules are interpreted until they're set in motion by the players. We have this circle that has to be closed uh, when we're talking about uh, uh, video games as text and performance. Um, and what is one uh, thing that I forgot to uh, mention before is that when I was studying Shakespeare, I also studied, I was part of uh, uh, the theater group in, um, uh, when I was in Spain in my, in my undergrad, I was part of the theater group. I also studied practice. So studying practice uh, when I study games is not like such a big, big leap. Um, so, how video games are performance is, is not, it's kind of intuitive in a way. Um, but we have, we do have some theoretical groundings that help us understand uh, video games as performance. And one of them is basically uh, the, the kind of one-on-one of, um, uh, of game studies, you know, a, a text uh, by Roger Calois, Man Play Games. Uh, he uh, explains that theater is one of the, the types of play that is uh, ludus play, that is regulated play. Uh, but um, going to Richard Chechner, who comes from the study of theater, uh, so comes from the same background as I have, uh, he studies um, performance following a theatrical model and lists you know, four basic types of uh, performance activities, uh, rituals like weddings or rich the passage. Uh, we have uh, theater, of course, we have games, and we have sports. And from those, he's kind of mapping you know, what, um, uh, what types of performance we can find. So for example, dance would be uh, closer to theater, or um, <coughs> music performance would be closer to theater. Uh, and of course, it was very handy that we had a, um, uh, an approach to performance that already included both games, uh, without the need of being digital, and also theater because it's a narrative, um, it's a narrative uh, medium. Uh, so uh, what uh, I was trying to do here was, okay, what I learned from Shakespeare, what I learned from interpreting texts in performance, you know, I can bring this to um, uh, understanding games. Uh, another quick refresher of uh, one of the uh, basic uh, uh, concepts that helps me understand video games as performance is, are, uh, again, borrowed from Richard Chechner and is the concept of restoration of behavior. He considers that all performance is restoring some sort of behavior and he's actually bringing the theatrical uh, metaphor, expanding it to explain things like social performance as well. 
but um, what he what he was de developing this uh, concept for was for things like historical reenactments, where uh, we have people re uh, representing you know a battle or one of those. Uh, uh, what is the name? William Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, you know those kinds of uh, recreations of a specific town. Um, that's the kind of um, performance activity that he was studying when he wrote uh, this specific uh, concept of um, restoration of behavior. So very quick, you know, this is the summary of what restoration of behavior uh, uh, means. Um, so his quote is, some behaviors, organized sequences of events, scripted actions, known texts, scored movements, exist separate from the performers who do these behaviors. Because the behavior is separate from those who are behaving, the behavior can be stored, transmitted, manipulated, transformed. So we have things like, we can have a theatrical text that the uh, players appropriate, but again, we can have a ritual that a certain tribe reenacts for tourists, and maybe tourists might be appalled if they see a goat being killed in front of them, but they have a um, puppy, or, or a, a puppet, sorry, a puppy, that would be even worse. <laughs> there would be a puppet goat uh, that they slaughter uh, as a way to appeal to the, to the tourists. So this actually helps me explain <coughs> games because what we do in games is actually restoring behavior. As game designers, we are designing potential behaviors to restore, be it um, you know pick up objects and uh, or be shit around or be it become Sherlock Holmes, which is one of the things I want to work on in the future. But I'll talk about that uh, later in this presentation. So so far, this has been a refresher of of the, my previous presentation. Um, I'm going to focus on the discussion of performance spaces. Uh, there are um, different aspects of performance that uh, are going to define what it is, you know, different qualities, and I'm not going to go through them in detail. Uh, one of the basic ones is that performance activities are separate from everyday life, and this is a bit of a clash in, uh, with thinking about social behavior as, as performance. But I'm going to talk about things like theater, sports, rituals. All these performance activities are separate from everyday life. What happens in the performance stays apart from everyday life, doesn't have consequences. It's a space for experimentation. It's a space for change. It's a space um, for trying things that we would not be able to do or we would not dare to do outside of uh, of the performance activity is what is usually referred to as uh, uh, the performance happens in the magic circle, which has been so misunderstood. And precisely this week, there has been some uh, responses on uh, an article by Eric Zimmerman about how people don't understand what the magic circle is. And what he actually talks about in his article is, is what I'm already addressing here. Um, there are, you know, the magic circle, the space of performance can be very, um, can be architectural, can be physical. Uh, we have here perf uh, examples of performance spaces of, of uh, <coughs> buildings that have been designed for a specific performance. We have a stadium, we have a temple, a religious temple, um, and we have a theater, a Greek theater. All those are spaces that first uh, situate what the space of the performance is, 
where the audience is and how they're going to participate in the, in the activity um, so that we know we can identify where the circle is. In the uh, stadium, for example, where there's a sports uh, competition, we have the limits of the playground. If we are out of the boundaries of the playground, the performance is not, it stops, it's not valid. We have to bring back you know, the ball into, the, uh, into the, um, the field, for example, if we're talking about basketball. Um, the things like the architectural space can also change its function. So for example, in the case of a temple, uh, this is uh, the mosque in Cordoba in Spain. Uh, and now it's become a tourist attraction. It's a, a thing that they still have a space for prayer, but really has uh, the function of the space is not um, tied to uh, the architecture itself. So, and we have, what is interesting is that we have the opposite, um, the, the, the opposite uh, happened with the magic circles. Like that really the space, the physical space is not, does not necessarily dictate what the performance is. Uh, because we can construct our own magic circle wherever we want. If we wanted to start a game here now, a telephone, we could start it here. We don't need a specific uh, um, architectural design. We would need a specific um, arrangement of how we're sitting around, uh, but you're almost kind of there. Um, in uh, football, uh, street football here, uh, we have this group of kids that is just playing on the street. They just need their ball, and they probably agreed on where their goalposts are uh, and what their boundaries are, but they don't need a special uh, space designed for it. Uh, street theater, uh, we can turn any corner into a performance space. If we start um, um, acting out, you know, we can uh, start saying, you know, Hamlet's monologue on the street, and that will be our space of performance. And the, confirm the confirmation that that's a space of performance is, you know, see how the audience is uh, surrounding the performers. So the magic circle is really uh, transportable. We can transport it. It's permeable. Uh, it's not as, as, as uh, um, solid as some people think it might be. And it's more flexible than, than, um, than it's, it's usually um, uh, discussed uh, as. Um, so you know, th the idea that the magic circle is part of social consensus, is part of where we think our performance is, is also very important when it comes to discussing how um, video games are a space of performance. So, one would think that because in video games we have the screen, uh, that means the video part of it, right? We are seeing what is going on, that the space of performance is the screen only. And there are theoreticians like Michael Nietzsche, for example, who argue that that is only part of the space, that the performance space of video games also extends to the social space where we are, the room where we're playing the game. It is by necessity, uh, that space too because we're holding a controller in order to participate in the virtual space of the game we need a controller we need an input um, that is going to affect the world uh, we need a mouse we need a um, you know the Wii controller you know to move around our space even in the case of things like the Kinect where the what uh, Janet Murray calls the threshold object might not be as obvious, we're still precisely using the space outside of the screen to participate in the virtual space. 
Um, so when, when it comes to video games, um, we're going to see how the space also extends beyond the screen. Uh, what I'm going to talk about, um, I'm going to focus on the design of this virtual space, but it's not, as I was coming up with the concepts of indexical storytelling, one thing that beca became obvious is that we have to also take into account the space outside of the game in order to understand how storytelling uh, takes place. So this is where um, I, this is my, my turn. This is the, the twist of the presentation. So how do we create spaces for performance? Um, how do we uh, create those spaces for performance? How do they become narratives? So uh, one concept that I found really useful from my Shakespeare days w comes from the book uh, written by Peter Brook, The Empty Space. Um, and it starts um, explaining how uh, the space of performance uh, comes from someone walking and someone else watching. That we don't need, again, very elaborate architectural um, uh, constructions in order to create the space of performance. Uh, of course, because he's also a theorist practitioner, or more a practitioner than a theorist, um, he was talking about some of the productions that he was the director of. So this is a 1970s production of A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Royal Shakespeare Company. It took place in a white box. It was a room. Uh, supposedly, they are in the forest near Athens, uh, but we had these doors. We had these coils that stood for the um, uh, trees that surrounded Athens. Uh, there were bushes, you know, depending on how the uh, actors interacted with them. Uh, so that basically was the, the actors' voices, the actors' body, the actors' actions that were creating the space. We were seeing the forest by actually um, seeing how the um, actors interacted with the space. This, the, the clear example of this are mimes, right? Uh, mimes are creating a space with their body movement. You know, there's a wall. You know, there is a staircase and they go up and they go down. Uh, we don't need to see it. We're seeing it through synecdoche, you know, by seeing the part of it, how it would affect the body. We're seeing the whole space. How does this relate to video games? How, does, um, how can we use this to understand video games? Well, my proposal here is that in video games we have the reversal. Rather than the body creating the space, as game designers, we create a space to uh, make the virtual body move a certain way. We are giving cues of how to perform through the space. So for example, in first-person shooters, we have the layout of the space uh, that is basically giving cues about where to go, um, you know, hiding, for example, uh, and taking cover. Um, and there are many ways that one can perform in that space. It's not that there's one single way of doing things. Um, you know, when I uh, play a first-person shooter, I try not to get killed. Um, there are other players that are very aggressive that will go out in the open because they're very confident on their, uh, on their shooting skills and they can be more daring. I perform in the space, you know, trying to hide more and, you know, looking behind walls a lot uh, and thinking a lot about what I do. Probably my strategy is not the most efficient to play a first-person game. Um, but 
uh, it's also based on the space and how the space is inviting me to do certain uh, actions or helping me to perform certain actions. Another very clear example of this are platformer games. This is uh, Yoshi's Island. Uh, this is a platformer in the Mario series. And we have jo Yoshi here uh, is trying to get to the end of this uh, of, of, of this screen, you know, trying to get up there. In order to get up there, um, we have these platforms that are going around. We have these little donuts that are also platforms that you cannot stand on for very long because they will collapse. So they are encouraging a certain way of actually navigating the space. Uh, we have coins that you have to pick up. So the space itself is giving us cues about what to do here, how to act in this space. So with this repertoire of uh, concepts, you know, this way of understanding performance uh, in video games related to the space, how do we bring in narrative? What does this have to do with narrative? Um, my theory is that when we're performing in a game that is story driven, that is, as we play, we are um, uh, having a narrative experience is that the performance has to take cues from the game as to what to do. So when, again, as designers, we design the cues to encourage a certain performance. And that performance doesn't have to be strict. In the same way that in theater, we can have many different versions of Hamlet that we're going to enjoy, even though it's the same text. Uh, in games, we can have that range of different uh, performances. At times, it can be you know, something as flexible as The Sims. We have this suburban California um, uh, setting where we uh, perform you know, everyday life things in California, although they also have aliens and whatnot. But apart from that, um, uh, in, in the basic Sims, the, the idea is that we are performing everyday life in a virtual environment. Uh, and it's the, the potential for storytelling, what we call the possibility space of The Sims, is very wide because it's, not, it's encouraging certain behaviors. It is a system, but we can figure out, we can create our own narratives based on that system. Uh, we have the other opposite uh, with games like Half-Life or um, The Legend of Zelda, uh, Ocarina of Time, you know, where there is a narrative that is, uh, first of all, telling us of our progress in the game. We have a very specific script that we have to reproduce. Uh, in Half-Life, the script is the result of you know, being a good shooter and you know, hitting the marks all of the, uh, at the right time. Uh, in The Legend of Zelda, it is an open world. We can do things, uh, we can explore the world and it's more open in that sense, but still there is a set order in which we have to um, complete each dungeon. You know, we have to follow the script in a very specific way. Uh, uh, the Grand Theft Auto series is kind of in between in that we have a space, we have that possibility space and we can experiment and we can drive around as cab drivers if we want or we can just drive and explore what the space is. But there's also a mission structure uh, that is the, the intended narrative of the game uh, that we, we can choose to follow and perform the life of uh, Nico Belli. I'm forgetting the last name, Belli? Um, uh, in the game. So 
So basically, the, the idea is that there is a range of performance. There is a range of interpretation of what we can do. At times, it's very tight. You know, there is only certain actions that will help us ad advance in the game. And at times, it's very flexible, like in the case of The Sims or games like Civilization. So restoring behavior in games means uh, restoring the narrative, whatever the narrative is, if it's pre-existent or if it's you know, come up with your own. The idea of uh, having spaces help uh, construct narrative is not really new. Um, the concept of environmental storytelling <coughs> has also become a discipline in game design. Uh, we have here the Harry Potter Park in Florida, and it's very strange because there's snow and everybody's wearing shorts. Um, so, you know, I, th I don't think that the visitors are very much in the role of, of, of being in, I think this is Hogsmeade. Um, uh, Don Carson um, uh, it was one of the first people to uh, write an article on environmental storytelling and the idea that you could create a space that would evoke um, some narratives, that you would understand the space as the relationship to uh, stories that uh, the visitors were already uh, familiar with. So uh, a lot of these strategies were how to, first of all, how to get uh, that connection with uh, pre-existing stories. A lot of what Imagineers do in, in, in Disney theme parks, for example, is getting uh, visitors to navigate this space a certain way. Uh, and that is something that we can take for games for sure. You know, how do we help players restore behavior in the form of navigation, going through the space in the order that we want them to? Uh, but as you see, as I was saying, is is <coughs> kind of funny that we have people in the in this space, but they're not really performing. They're visitors. Um, they're experiencing it, but you know, they're not really role playing. You know, being part of the space. The the um, uh, I guess the the people who dress up um, as as uh, part of the space are helping, uh, are kind of part of that recreation of the story, but, but the visitors themselves are not performing. The performance is happening, happening around them. Um, so the concept of the visitor um, kind of clashes a bit with what we want to do in games. We want to have our players involved. We want them to inhabit the space. We want it to play the roles, to perform as well. Um, so. Um, from environmental storytelling, uh, Henry Jenkins uh, wrote his article on game design as narrative architecture. And again, he kind of harped on the idea that uh, spaces could evoke other narratives. And he talks about, for example, um, how American McGee's Alice is evoking the space not only of the novels, but more especially of the Disney movies and how making sense of what is going on in the space is because we already, we're already familiar with this pre-existing uh, narratives. Um, but he also talks a bit, he, he starts to introduce how interactivity and participating in the space can also be part of the narrative. So uh, he talks about, for example, micro-narratives who are very short um, narrative scenes or, um, or uh, reactions to what the player does. So we have this bit of, of actually trying not only to tell the story through the environment, but making the, the space reactive to what uh, the player is doing. Uh, environmental storytelling is also a very uh, important concept when it comes to the industry. Uh, Bioshock and Portal are recurring examples in 
many of the many presentations that you find in uh, trade conferences like the Game Developers Conference. There's always one talk about how to do environmental storytelling. Uh, by listening to a lot of these, what I realize is that environmental storytelling is a huge discipline. Uh, a lot of these uh, talks are actually given laundry lists of different ways of approaching uh, storytelling in space. And what I wanted to propose is starting to find, identify different areas in that discipline that we can tackle. And even in those areas, they're still kind of huge. As uh, you know, the more I, I think about this, the, the concept of indexical storytelling, the more I realize that it is really, really wide. Um, so um, my proposal in order to start narrowing or, or more than narrowing, organizing what it means to do environmental storytelling, uh, one of the first concepts that I've come up with is the idea of indexical storytelling, which is the practice of using indexes in order to construct a story. Um, what does that mean? I'm understanding indexes in the Pearson sense, Charles Pierce, and this is a bit of semiotics 101, which some of you might be already familiar with. So for those of you who are not, uh, let me give a really quick uh, uh, rundown of what uh, a sign is for Pierce and what an index specifically is. So Pierce talks about uh, a sign as having three components. First of all, there's the object that is being uh, represented, in this case, a tree. Um, then the interpreter, how our idea of tree, uh, kind of like a, an idealized uh, version of tree that allows us to uh, see that an oak and a birch are a tree, but that a uh, tomato vine is not a tree. Uh, so that this is the abstract uh, concept of the tree. And then the representation of tree, which can be a word, a written word, can be a spoken word, tree, uh, can be an icon, for example. Um, so that's the idea of sign is, is the representation, the actual representation of an idea represented physically. And physically can be with a sound, with a visual. And um, uh, for him, there are three basic types of signs, an icon, a symbol, and a symbol, and an index. Um, an icon is a sign that has uh, the represents, uh, represents an idea or a concept by imitating them. The classic examples are things like a photograph. This is a photograph of a, um, a fairground, uh, a drawing, uh, an onomatopoeia, that is a word that sounds like the sound that it's trying to represent, like bang or crack. Uh, we have symbols, which are um, uh, signs in which the relationship between the representation and the uh, idea is arbitrary, is not set, uh, is being part of the social consensus. And, and I'm going here a bit into Saussure's understanding of, um, of uh, sign. Um, uh, signs like, for example, biohazard was designed precisely so that it didn't have any resemblance to anything else, didn't uh, look like anything else, and could not be mistaken uh, uh, by uh, uh, s uh, being some other idea. Uh, and this was all on purpose, and this is all arbitrary. But the kind of sign that I'm interested in is the index. Um, and the way that um, uh, Peirce is talking about index, uh, he starts discussing the index as a uh, sign that has a physical connection to the idea uh, 
uh, that it's trying to represent. So here we have signposts. They um, are pointing to the direction that we're supposed to go. That's the direction that is being represented. Um, indexes have also been understood as having, again, this physical connection. Things like having a fire, uh, 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 smoke indicates that there's a fire. Um, uh, doctors uh, read symptoms that are the indexes that there is a, a disease. Uh, so we have this physical resemblance, you know, it, it, that can be usually living a trip. Excuse me, I'm <laughs> I think I need some water. Uh, uh, leaving a trace in the space, you know, like having uh, events that are actually uh, leaving an imprint uh, in the space as that kind of uh, physical uh, connection. Uh, so can we tell stories with indexes? Is there any way in which we have uh, a, uh, a whole story that is just told with indexes? So. Yeah, I, I, I need my throat to get to the next part because it's fun. <laughs> so the answer is yes. And I hope that this shows. OK, here's the story. You know this picture? Can you tell what has gone on here? Yes. So the story here, we have the tracks of a bunny that was and then the wings of a hawk that snatched the bunny. This is all an index. We have a story here. There's more indexes of this story. This is a series of photos. There's like bits of fur and feathers and blood. <laughs> so you can tell what's happened. And we didn't see it happen. It's all indexes. So uh, here we have uh, a technique um, to tell stories through indexes. The idea that we are engaging into interpreting these signs. Um, and that can become a game, you know, kind of detective game, for example. Um, what is more, so again, going back to Peirce, uh, was really useful because he was giving me a lot of the concepts that helped me understand how indexes uh, can be used uh, in games and narratives. Uh, because he talks about uh, indexes as uh, more or less detailed directions uh, for what the hearer is to do in order to place himself in direct experiential or other connection with the thing meant. So an index is first, is telling us what to do. In games, we're doing things all the time. Learning what to do, knowing what to do next is part of the game. It's absolutely essential. And the idea of being able to situate ourselves in the world, relating it to our previous experience and knowing what to do next. You know, this is what something that indexes do already and that is something absolutely basic um, for uh, video games. Um, so how have, have games used this? Because again, I don't think that this is particularly new. Um, there are many examples. Uh, but by looking at the examples, we can also realize of what the limitations of what are the things that are missing. Um, so in the same way that narratives and games have a two level, uh, um, two areas that they can apply to, you know, on the one hand, there's the history of the world, what has happened in the world, what, what does it come from? Uh, but there's also the history of the player. What does the player do uh, as they're interacting in the world? Uh, those two levels 
can also use indexes in order to be uh, not told, but I always, um, I don't like the idea of telling the story. I like more the idea of, of constructing the story because it refers both to the uh, designer who's constructing the story, wh whose pieces the player has to put together. So we have these two levels uh, of uh, storytelling that can use indexes. So detective work is a kind of obvious um, use of indexes. Uh, excuse me for a second. With the example of the bunny and the hawk, we were kind of becoming detectives. We were seeing the environment, and we were making sense of what had happened there by reading the indexes. Uh, in games like the Phoenix Wright series, we are a, um, uh, an attorney, and we're trying to find evidence uh, to prove that our clients are always innocent, or almost always. Uh, and what we do is examining uh, evidence, cross-questioning people, examining spaces, getting objects that are telling part of the story that we then are going to use in court to tell another version of the story. Um, and this is a very clear example, you know, going into the genre fiction of, of course, we can, we can resort to, to um, detective genre fiction to tell indexes with stories. That's kind of obvious, but it doesn't have to be uh, detectives. You know, in Mist, for example, we are also detectives of the space. Um, when we arrive, we are not given any pointers, we just dropped, and we have to figure out what to do and where to go by, you know, exploring a lot and trying a lot of different things. But the way the Mist uh, uses indexes to tell its story is very interesting because we get there and there's this library and we have two guys that are trapped in books and they're asking you to release them from the books. Um, and you have to choose who to release. As you go into the world, as you explore, you see what these people have done in all the different islands that they've been rulers of. And one of them, we can see that he's very greedy because he has a lot of jewels and luxurious items. Uh, the other seems to enjoy torture and has a lot of uh, uh, contraptions to hurt people. Um, and it's up to you to realize that this is who they are. These objects are telling us who these people are and what they've done in those, um, in those spaces. So again, we don't need uh, the detective genre to really point out to, um, uh, to really uh, encourage a specific behavior of detective is something that the player can do. Um, another um, uh, example of uh, how indexical storytelling has been used in games is the interpretation of remain, remains. And when we talk, when, when you hear talks uh, from the industry of what uh, environmental storytelling is, they almost always exclusively refer to this, to going into a space where something has happened and we see the leftovers. Uh, Bioshock is a typical example. We get there and we see that this was an idealistic world and there were riots and something horrible happened and um, uh, people were trying to leave but they couldn't and there was you know, this war that kind of broke out. Um, so this is just by looking at the environment. In Portal, for example, we can go in the behind the scenes of Portal. The main gameplay is actually you know, solving these puzzles with this uh, Portal gun. Uh, but we see what has happened 
to other people who've gone through the same circuit that we're going through. Uh, that there were subjects, we are a test subject, and there were other test subjects that tried to escape or tried to break off from restoring the behavior of solving the, the puzzles. Uh, and they went into corners, and we have the famous, the cake is a lie, scribbled, you know, they're kind of like, people were going crazy, counting the days uh, that they had spent. Every mark on the wall is a mark telling us how many days they were there. There's an index uh, of, of when they were there. Uh, and what happens here is that usually uh, indexical storytelling in this uh, way is used to, as a way to not have to have a cutscene. It's a way to avoid uh, stopping the action and um, letting the player engage with the story if they want to. Uh, some people just want to play, some people just want to you know, solve the puzzles in Portal or blow people's heads up in uh, Bioshock, uh, but it's not really uh, conducive to, um, to helping restore behavior always. Um, one, actually, um, Harvey Smith and I think this Matthias Wartz, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, in one of the presentations at GDC made a really interesting um, comment precisely on Portal that helps us understand indexical storytelling and its potential to help restore behavior. And the way that they talk about it is actually by saying, well, in Portal, we have someone who's been in the space before us. Do we want to be like this person? It's a way to create identity. Are we identifying with this person? Do we want to break off from what they've done? Do we want to make their same mistakes? What happened to them? Um, so that idea of comparing ourselves to someone that's been there uh, as a way to, again, wh who are we? Uh, um, is, uh, who are, who, what's our behavior uh, compared to the behavior of, of other agents that have been in the space? Um, is, is one way of, of connecting this to restoration of behavior. Um, for um, continuing with, with the idea of indexes in, in games, this is a very uh, special case because we have obviously signposts and tutorials are indexes in the Persian sense. Uh, signposts tell us where to go, how to navigate the space, and tutorials tell us what to do. So, for example, we have here Mario 64, uh, and in the beginning uh, garden of Mario 64, we have signposts that are telling us what the repertoire of movements of Mario is in the world. Uh, there's one sign that says, climbing's easy. When you jump at trees, poles, or pillars, you'll grab them automatically. Press A to jump off backward. So, this is an index, what to do. What is the problem here? We're saying press A is again pointing out to the space outside. We have tutorials that are basically, they cannot really leave out the space of performance that is outside because we have to connect uh, our space with the world. Storytelling wise, this can be a problem because we're stepping outside of the world. You know, the, the, the story is going to happen diegetically in the world. How are we negotiating that space? I don't think that it's bad to point out to the space outside, but how, do, how we negotiate that, how we integrate those, uh, those signs, those uh, indications about what to do in the story is, uh, is a problem that we should uh, address, at least. Um, there are tutorial missions, for example, that are telling the player, you know, this is the vocabulary, what to do, and are trying to uh, integrate the story 
you know, making the story advance and setting it up as the player is learning how to use the controls. But this is always, um, um, this is the kind of problem that is worth looking into. It's not that we have solved it, it's not that it's bad to uh, point out to the extra diegetic uh, space of, of the game. So that's the rundown of the uh, how indexes have told uh, stories uh, in, with respect to the history of the world. But indexes can also tell stories with respect to the player. And in order to have to let to have indexes tell the story of the player, we're basically letting the player leave a trace, leave an imprint in the world. For that, what we need is that the world is persistent, that we are actually letting the player uh, leave their mark. And that's not always the case. This is uh, a screenshot from Super Castlevania IV. And um, this also applies to uh, all the Castlevania 2D games. When we play this game, there are certain areas, and we fight enemies, and we traverse the space. Uh, and if by any chance we go back, we'll find out that the enemies have respawned, that a lot of the things that we picked up are back where they were, and we, it's as if we hadn't done anything. Um, that's not, again, this is not necessarily bad. Uh, this means that the world is not persistent. It's become a design decision. Um, that, again, you know, it could have been a uh, technological uh, constraint initially. The idea that you, keeping trace of everything that the player had changed uh, could have been process heavy, for example. Um, but um, it, later on, when the technology became better, um, this remained as a design decision, as something that players would expect. But again, we're not leaving a trace. We're not leaving indexes of our presence in the world. The thing is, we don't need particular technology to do this. And this is for Nick. Um, we have Adventure and the Pirate's Maze. The, uh, this is a text adventure. This was one of the earliest computers out there. And when we enter the maze in this game, every single room that we enter is described in exactly the same way. You are in a maze of twisty little passages. Caves lead left, forward, right, back. We go somewhere else, and the, the um, uh, description is exactly the same. Wherever we go is exactly the same. We're trying to map this. Again, uh, an interactive fiction is very interesting how we do need the space of the player in order to map where we are and know where we are. Uh, and in this case, how do we know where we are? Everything is described the same. We leave traces. We have our inventory objects, and we start dropping them. So here we see how um, uh, we're coming back to a room where we have the description, and then suddenly we see a zither. That makes that room different. Therefore, we can distinguish from other rooms. Therefore, we can map the space. And we can uh, basically create a narrative of, of us uh, solving uh, the space and navigating it. So again, we don't need very complicated technology to leave traces. Uh, there are games that actually thrive on indexes, or rather not leaving an index. And that's the case of the whole stealth genre. Games like Splinter Cell, this is Metal Gear Solid 2 from the Metal Gear Solid series, or Thief, 
they're all about us uh, entering uh, places without being noticed, is about being a spy, being a thief. We don't have to leave a trace. Uh, but these games are very good at, letting, uh, at actually uh, not only letting, but having the player leave a trace in the world. We, uh, in Thief, uh, people can hear our footsteps. Uh, here in Metal Gear Solid 2, if we have an enemy, uh, we have a guard, and we knock them down, they will remain where they are, and that's an index that we're there, and that's an index that there's an intruder. So that if another soldier comes, that you know, computer agent will interpret that as an index and raise the alarm, and then they start looking for you. So what you have to do in these games is avoid leaving that trace or hiding your traces. Here, for example, um, in, in Metal Gear, you can hide the bodies of you know, the, the dead or sleeping soldiers so that they don't see that you've been there. You can use indexes uh, to deceive people. So you have uh, the uh, uh, empty uh, magazine uh, of, uh, of a gun. You can throw it, and that will make a noise that a guard can go and see and check out what's going on while you go past and they don't see you. So playing around with indexes is a way to, again, it has to do with how we restore behavior. As someone who's sneaking in, we have to avoid living indexes. That's how we perform in the space. Um, so just to you know, finish a bit, now these are the examples of what's being done. There's a lot more examples, and probably a few more will come up. Uh, during the Q&A. But how is this helping my work? You know, I said that I am uh, working in game design research. So this is the theory. This is the, 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 the foundation, the conceptual foundation of what I'm doing. But how am I using this in my own work? Um, this is, well, this is in practice my specific project in Gambit. But before that, uh, let me trace back a bit. Um, I'm having this phase where I really uh, enjoy Sherlock Holmes, and this is the, the BBC show of Sherlock Holmes is totally to blame. Um, and uh, this is very comparative media studies. I see this show, and I was totally thrilled because I was just amazed at how cool it was seeing someone who was so clever. And how can I make players be that clever and feel that thrill? Because I really love it. Um, and uh, I started looking at some of the Sherlock Holmes games. I'm still going through them. Uh, and I realized that in Sherlock Holmes games, we restore behavior as Sherlock Holmes, but we restore it more as an actor uh, that has to figure out what to do, but then actually doing detective work, like reading indexes. So this is kind of like the high-level concept of, of what is driving my practical work. So how does indexical storytelling inform what I want to do? I've found this. Um, this uh, area that I want to improve on. Uh, so we're talking about detective work. We're talking about reading indexes. What games are about reading spaces and indexes and trying to tell a story out of it? There's the genre of hidden object games, uh, where we have a screen that, where there's a lot of stuff. This is Return to Ravenhurst, and we have they're very very cluttered. And what you have to do, you're supposedly a detective in this game. Um, and what you do is finding object, uh, objects that are in a list. Um, and you're kind of more a janitor than a detective. You're cleaning it up. So I, I've been wondering, you know, what can we do with hidden object games that can be more like being a detective, 
that can be more conducive to actually telling stories with these uh, screens. For example, this game takes place supposedly in England, and there's a $20 bill. And this is the beginning of the 20th century too, so what the hell is a $20 bill here, doing here? How is this part of the story? Um, how can we improve the storytelling in the genre? Then I'll get to Sherlock Holmes, you know, that, that's, that would be the next thing. But this was, this was basically one of those chunks of telling stories through objects that I, uh, I thought I could tackle uh, relatively easily. So that's what I'm working on right now. This is my uh, project for the semester. Um, so just a little summary of what I've been talking about today. Um, again, playing games and video games is restoring behavior because it's a performance activity. Um, what I've been trying to explain here is how indexical storytelling as a concept is refining the large area of what environmental storytelling is um, and how uh, indexes seem to be a type of sign that uh, is helping not only restore behavior but integrate narrative and gameplay as the player is uh, performing in the space. Um, and one of the issues and one of the uh, uh, the, the concepts that has come up from analyzing what's been done before is that players do not usually have enough opportunity to leave a trace in the narrative as well as to actually read the traces uh, and construct a story from that and be that sanctioned as part of the gameplay. So that's it. Thank you. Clara, thanks very much. And it makes me think of Carlo Ginsburg's clues Mm -hmm. where, he does, yeah. where he does Freud and Holmes and Morelli, and um, <coughs> three different levels of storytelling through the kinds of structure you were talking about, the syntactical venetic tradition he talks he about. He also edited a book called The Sign of Three, uh, which was Holmes, Dupin, and uh, Peirce, <laughs> and is basically going through detective stories and how they are uh, using, um, is a semiotic analysis of, of detective yeah. stories, which is really cool. Terrific. So, one thing about indexical storytelling that the industry seems to be taking for granted is that it's the sort of thing where you can choose to ignore if you wanted to. Um, you know, like like you said in Bioshock, you might just be playing it for the action. Um, you can choose to ignore all the storytelling elements in it. Um, in fact, and 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 there are games like Spider, um, uh, which uses as far as I can tell, indexical storytelling in a very great degree, but what you're doing as a player and performing it is only kind of tangentially related yeah. to, 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 to that. But you do leave a trace in the space. Yo, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you leave spider webs everywhere, right? Uh, and, and, and it completely changes the space uh, in the process. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm wondering about games where the traces that you're leaving and the stories that you're creating are kind of largely dissociated from the from the story of the world before that, and and is is that is that just is is, is, is are there good reasons for that no. other than you know well we just didn't have time 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 to tie the two together or you know, is it just always a missed opportunity when that happens or is there like good reasons for there to be like quite separate from each? It's a design philosophy, like everything, right? You know, what is the focus of your game? You know, where do you want to, what do you want to provide to players? And um, in our class yesterday, we were talking about, there were a couple of us who were complaining that we love Bioshock 
as a space and to figure out what's happened. But why are these guys shooting at us? Why won't they leave us alone? Because that's not what I want to do. I want to know what happened. Um, but it's, you know, the richness of the game is precisely that it leaves that room for players to interpret the space and figure out what's happened if they want to. I don't think it's so much a missed opportunity. I mean, is this is is an opportunity for richness it's an opportunity for the players to engage with the space in more than one way that is not just shooting um but i think that uh in general um the way that the space is being used to tell stories you know that the the connection to gameplay and that interpretation as part of gameplay has not been emphasized as as, as much um so is it a missed opportunity i don't know i think that i like that it's a discipline that is developing, even if it's not consciously. Um, and what we have to do, and this is the issue with detective stories, um, because in the last uh, couple of years, you know, working with students, uh, when we are a detective, and going back to Sherlock Holmes, when we're a detective, what we're doing is retelling a story. Sherlock Holmes stays at uh, Baker Street and a client comes and tells him a story and depending on the the era where Conan Doyle was writing uh, at times he solved the, the 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 case in his room by retelling the story he could tell you know he would read the indexes differently and he could retell it and is the mechanics for that retelling that we don't quite have you know where what are the opportunities for players to tell their own stories, their interpretation of what is going on? Those are the tools, that's the gap um, that, that where there's an opportunity. With the hypnotic games, you know, I'm going to, to the essentials of where, you know, how do these objects tell the story? But the next natural step is going to be how do we get players to tell their own stories with these objects? Yes? Does that answer your question? Yeah, it, it definitely addresses it. So really great, loved it. Um, I, I really like the invocation of Percy and semiotics. I think it's like hugely important. Like obviously we've got a, a few people at Gambit doing it. I think it's great. Um, it, it opens an interesting door though um, for notions of literacy and, and reading. Um, that is to say you, you would need to know, um, know the word tree a, a, in order to understand the connection, right? Also, literacy involves um, knowing how to read, so things like grammar, but then also whether or not a text reads right to left, even as high level as how do I open a book, um, you know, really kind of stable things like that. And the more stable the language is, um, you know, it can kind of bolster communication. One of the things about games that maybe is problematic is the rules are rapidly changing, right? And there are different rules for different games. And, and it's something that's constantly being pushed on as the technological kind of, you know, curve just shoots up because as soon as you learn how to use a controller, um, they give you a connect and now you're the controller, right? And so I'm wondering if there's, um, if there's some challenge to the fact that there, there isn't that kind of um, rule or language stability inside of games yet, s such that if, if, you know, if I am not literate in Metal Gear Solid, I'm not going to be able to read it in the same way that someone is, like Matt might be able to, right? So it's the, the matter of games literacy is going to apply whether they're storytelling or indexes. You know, the, that's always going to be there. Uh, one of the roles of games is actually teaching the player how to read that environment. So it's not that it's completely 
uh, so this is, that, uh, is not completely new. We are, the, the game can help us read along, uh, and then from that we can be on our own. Uh, but again, it's, it's just the Sherlock Holmes has been so useful to understand these things. Um, if I want players to be Sherlock Holmes in a game, uh, Sherlock Holmes has a lot of knowledge about things that we don't even think of. So he knows, I think it's 133 different types of tobacco ash, which is not something that we can expect players to know. So how are we using that knowledge that Sherlock Holmes has? How, do we have to teach it to the player? Do we have to coach the player to do that? It's really tough. You know, it's like, do we have to introduce it? And then it's like, oh, use it. You know, look at the catalog of Sherlock Holmes's brain to figure out what type of ash it is. On the other hand, he doesn't know basic things like what the planets in the solar system are, which is also a problem. Um, so so it added to the literacy of understanding the space is the literacy of who we are. Are we role-playing this one uh, character, or are we ourselves, and we're using our own knowledge in order to sol solve the solve the problem? Um, but yeah, I don't think that the like knowing what the controls are and how to uh, navigate using a controller is different from how knowing how to read the space as a narrative. I think that all those levels, in all those levels, we have to really teach players, you know, and, and it depends on what we're expecting <coughs> from players. Uh, there are games where, uh, that are designed for expert players that are not going to teach you how to sneak in because you probably have played all the other games before in the series. And, um, but there are others that are kind of trying to introduce players to the genre and kind of like coaching them and giving enough scaffolding to actually uh, act in the world. Yes? Like, like beginner books. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thank you for the talk. Uh, I was wondering if you would link this concept of player performance and um, leaving signs mm -hmm. uh, with something like the mechanic in both Dark and Demon Souls, I think, yeah. <laughs> where you can leave where you can leave messages for people in the world. And I'm wondering, um, you know, how would you? It's one of the slides that I left out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so thank you. Right. Well, I, I, I guess, but um, I mean, mentioned in passing, but more, you know, how would you spin? How would you spin that into something more complex as a way to 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 build a game mechanic in general? I think. Uh, so there's two levels. So first of all, let me explain what the game that Todd is referring to: Dark Souls, Demon Souls. Um, uh, it's a game that is a role-playing game, it's single player, and um, players do leave traces in the world. Uh, all the players are, if you have an internet connection, you're connected to other people's games. And it's not that you're playing with other people necessarily, but your actions uh, are traces for other people to, or other players to read. So for example, if you die, you leave a blood stain that other players can read by standing on it and they'll see the last few seconds of what happened to you uh, and again you know it has to do with the idea of identity like you see what the mistake that someone else did like entering a place without being having a weapon or standing in a place that is actually in the range of the uh, the fiery breath of a dragon 
And if actually if you're standing in that blood stain, it's very likely that you would get burned too. Um, so, so that is um, one of the ways in which you can leave a trace, actually, by making mistakes. Uh, you can leave traces on purpose. You can leave messages for other players saying, beware of whatever enemy might be uh, behind. Uh, this uh, is, says there's valuable, uh, valuable uh, treasure ahead. Uh, and at times, you can try to deceive people. Uh, but the players can also rate whether they like your message or not. So this is how it works. Uh, the thing with Demon Souls is that it's really relying, again, on the space outside of the game. That we are getting um, uh, traces from players in other games. We're not in the same world, but they're connected. Uh, the idea of leaving these messages, you know, like the online space is actually kind of connecting players, creating a community of players connected through the world, and that is what is strange about it. Um, it's true that this is one of the first games to do this, this idea that you're all in this together, and because these games are so stupidly hard, it's kind of like the solidarity, like, oh, please help me, you know, there's all the people who've gone through the same thing as I've gone through. But um, I don't know if it's, the complexity of it, I don't know if, again, it's all a design uh, approach. Do we want to make it more complex? Or do we want to find other ways to leave these traces, you know, that maybe might be sharing your experience? It's not about, you know, in this game, everything's very scary. I find this game very scary. Um, uh, it's about leaving nice things for other people. Um, is about sharing experiences, is about finding secrets and telling other people about those secrets in the game. Um, I think that it, they've found out a very interesting tool, um, but I don't know if, if it's like making it more complex as like, well, what, do we have an MMO where you can actually leave traces and, you know, and that would be a whole technological mess on its own. Um, I think that that is when we talk about uh, traces that are shared by uh, different uh, players online, for example, it's a way of choosing what that web is, you know, what those connections are. And here is a kind of solidarity or like, look, this guy just fell off a cliff because he was an idiot. Oh, I fell too. Uh, why not having it be more about, again, you know, exploration, for example, who, who is first to find a secret? Uh, or, um, or or a construction, you know, like um, Minecraft, for example. It's all about leaving traces in the world. You go around and you're digging up and you're finding new materials and you're leaving your trace. <coughs> um, so, so yeah, like Minecraft is, is a way where you can have a shared space that is all about constructing things and leaving traces in the world. Yes. So I, I was also going to bring up the Demon Souls, Dark Souls series and sort of the... Um, it seems to me like the extant examples of this all have to do with sort of stories that have already been told and leaving mm -hmm. a leaving an artifact of something that's happened, not mm -hmm. that's happening in real time. Um, and I mean, the the Souls games give us a good example of how players can sort of use these as tools of communication to to inform players that are in the story, players who have come before them, mm -hmm. sort of like the portals, the scribbles on the wall model. Um, but, but I'm sort of interested in the way that uh, multiplayer first person shooters also kind of, mm -hmm. they implement these traces in a real time collaborative way. And I'm interested in whether uh, there might be some more um, sort of collaborative narrative dimensions to that. So in a game like Modern Warfare, if a player dies, uh, the, the ground is marked with a skull and crossbones mm -hmm. for a few minutes so other players don't walk into the same trap. 
Um, in Battlefield, it actually takes it a step further where there's a button where you can use to uh, mark enemy characters that you have seen. Oh. And then for the benefit of other players who might not have seen them, uh, superimposed onto their HUD is a, a little marker saying, you know, someone on your team has seen this player moving around, and now for 10 seconds you all can see them because they've uh, signaled that to the rest of the group. So that, this is happening in real time, mm -hmm. and it's happening sort of for, for sort of moments in time, and then it goes away. Um, could you talk a little bit about whether there are narrative dimensions to this, or is that purely kind of an instrumental competitive uh, I think tactic. that there is potential for narrative there. One of the examples that I didn't get to talk about either is uh, decals and actually leaving a trace, you know, like shooting around uh, and leaving your shots on the wall, for example, and you know, like doing graffiti on the walls, uh, which has been incorporated in some of these games as, oh, this is something fun to do. Um, and you know, I think that there is the potential to actually, you know, tell the stories. Like I, I don't know, maybe because the it also has to do with the type of behavior that you have to restore. So if the main behavior that you're restoring is shooting around and you know, like being in a team, the narrative is not as rich as you're in a, um, uh, you're, for example, in an online version of Clue. You know, we have a lot of these, um, you know, like what if everybody's trying to figure out who the murderer is and you start marking people or like, okay, I think I think that this person were in, was in this place. Um, you know, like that, the, the, the behavior that you have to restore is more narrative in a way, is more conducive to be interpreted as a narrative. You know, I think maybe this is my bias that, that in first person shooters, kind of like I find the, the narrative a bit repetitive. Um, but it's true that is one of the um, leaving decals, uh, and actually, for example, the um, the uh, skulls and and um, uh, the skull and bones uh, is a way to tell again construct an identity. Like, don't do this. You know, there's a trap here. Uh, but it can also tell a little story. So uh, one of the examples that um, Harvey Smith gave in his talk uh, was a someone who was doing a decal, he was writing a smiley with guns, and then you saw the, um, the, the body of the player who was trying to do that. And that told the story. It's like, this player was so into leaving a trace on the wall that forgot that somebody was coming behind him and shot him. Um, and you know, that's, it's kind of not, it's not the point of the game, but it's actually telling us a story that we interpret and that we are kind of reacting against. So I think that, yeah, like, there is the potential there. I think that we have to realize that even first-person shooters might have that potential of us knowing what's gone on as a way to situate ourselves and do the next thing. Uh, but, you know, again, maybe we have to think of some of the same components applied to other types of gameplay that are not necessarily, you know, first-person shooters. Uh, thanks, Clara. Uh, so, uh, in, you mentioned Henry Jenkins' uh, paper, Game Design as Narrative Architecture, mm -hmm. and one of the things that he mentions in, in the paper is this idea that certain uh, types of, uh, cer certain genres mm -hmm. uh, tend to be uh, inherently more spatial. So he, he talks about uh, the Jules Verne and journeying to the center of the earth or uh, under the sea. And in your talk at the end, you also mention indexical storytelling as being uh, uh, suited for 
hidden object games. Uh, so what I want to ask about then is, what do you see as some of the kind of relationship between genre and environmental uh, storytelling? What are the kind of intersection points? Uh, is it suited to particular genres? Is it constitutive of particular genres? Uh, can, can you just expand I, on that uh, relationship? I think that kind of links to what uh, Sonny was talking about, right? Um, yeah, there are certain genres that relate to, to indexes more directly, even detective stories, obviously. Um, it's interesting how of all the Euro Doctor games, you don't read indexes in them, um, though it might seem kind of obvious. Uh, you're doing kind of surgery, for example, and killing bacteria with lasers. Um, but, you know, maybe that's, you know, using indexical storytelling to become a doctor is kind of like more appropriate. It kind of depends on um, the idea of the verbs of the game. You know, what are the verbs of the genre? If the verbs of the genre are investigate, cross-question, um, you know, reconstruct the story, that seems to be more prone to indexical storytelling than um, shooter games where it's like shoot or dodge or um, hide, reload. Um, but I think that maybe one of the, the, the interesting things would be actually going beyond the genre and say, like the case of Mist, for example, uh, is not necessarily a genre piece and yet it's using a lot of, uh, it's one of the best examples of how to use indexical storytelling to construct a story. Um, so uh, the relationship between genre and indexical storytelling is that genres also bring in its whole, its own behaviors. You are a detective, you are a space marine, you are a space janitor, it's been too. Uh, you are a magician. You know, you the genre is kind of dictating who you are and you come with all that knowledge to restore behavior. How that relates to both interpreting the story that might have happened, you know, like when we come with a genre, a lot of the tropes of what the story that might have happened might come from that genre too. Um, but, you know, how does it, what does it have to do with the traces that we can leave in the world? You know, like the, it's not about the story of the world itself, but how the, do we tell the story of the player? Is there room for indexes? I think that it's, it's a challenge, but, you know, it's, it's a worth experiment to see, like, how can we snap out of genre and just take uh, indexical storytelling on its own, too? Um. Excellent, uh, very interesting uh, thoughts here. Uh, one of the things that I'm reminded of is uh, you talk uh, about Sherlock Holmes and the use of the index. Uh, Holmes was really Conan Doyle's reflection back on uh, Cuvier and a lot of the French anthropologists, who paleontologists who began to work with traces found in fossil pits where uh, a lot of the excavations were being made to uh, create modern buildings and so forth. And so the emergence of the entire field of uh, geological speculation, which led into the construction of the modern world, the evolutionary world, was really based on traces that were mm -hmm. found. And the ability people had developed to take an element, uh, like a bone fragment or something, and to build an entire organism out of it. And this became uh, a huge uh, activity all across geology in the 19th century. Uh, it was used by people who began to excavate uh, and try to understand uh, London the way it existed in the Middle Ages and before. And so this whole world, uh, underground world, was uncovered through this process of traces and mm -hmm. looking at traces. And it seems to me 
that what you're exploring here is a kind of a resonance to this, this massive uh, movement that took place in the 19th century. Uh, so out of this, I'm, I'm wondering, I, I just have one question, but I think there's, there are all kinds of resonances here, really, really rich ones. But uh, one thing that occurs to me is uh, these traces were all very carefully cataloged, and they all belong to certain genres and so forth. And I'm wondering if you've thought at all about uh, the types of traces and the way in which different kinds of traces work in different kinds of worlds and the kinds of worlds that are possible and the way in which you could use traces to actually build structures and manipulate worlds out of certain consistent characteristics. Mm -hmm. So, well, first of all, um, I think that um, Kondo was a doctor, so yes. he was reading he was. indexes all the time, and his, I think the Sherlock Holmes actually came from a, a teacher of his in, in medical school in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was already doing this. And yes, the, absolutely. The methods of Sherlock Holmes actually came from this. Um, yeah, part of what comes next and uh, what I'm trying to explore through this hidden object uh, game is precisely, you know, what are the types of indexes? Because as you see, this is huge. You know, I have... Um, cataloged some of them uh, uh, depending on whether it's the history of the world or the player and the way that I've been cataloging them is depending on how they relate to gameplay but yeah like uh, what are the different types of, of traces you know is it a physical trace is it a spiritual trace one of the uh, um, types of uh, indexes that I had in, in a longer version of this uh, was actually ghosts uh, in games, where you can, this is the type of uh, uh, trace that um, uh, Demon Souls is leaving. You see the ghost of someone who's been there and died. Um, there's also a, a, there's an interesting example in games like Myst or Bioshock, where we have these diaries, for example, in Bioshock they're recorded, in Myst they're books. And they're telling a story, but this is a very important difference. The fact that they're there is an index that somebody's been there, but the way that they're telling a story is not an index. So that's one of the, like more than, apart from expanding types of indexes, there's also other types of spatial storytelling, of environmental storytelling that we need to explore. This is just one chunk. Uh, but yeah, like what are, like trying to classify, I, like trying to formulate them might be tricky because once you formulate them, if the players realize that what you're doing is not fun anymore. So, so there's only, this is always the, 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 the struggle when you're designing a game. If you say this index is going to mean this and this is going to mean this, like if it's always the same, then you know, the mystery, which is what drives us to try to interpret in these indexes, is gone. Um, so, yeah, like it, it's part of what I, I want to explore in, in the next step. How do uh, objects tell stories? Archaeology is one of the things that I want to look into. Uh, painting. There have been told stories told through objects in paintings and, and paintings of paintings, uh, which I recently found, uh, a, a collection of them in El Prado. Uh, and that is saying something about the person that owns them. You know, what are they trying to say with with those objects that they're representing? Um, so yeah, this is all huge. This is why this is the beginning of the next uh, uh, research project. Thanks for your talk, Clara. Um, I wanted to ask. Uh, 
at a higher level about uh, applying the concept of performance to engagement with video games. Mm -hmm. um, so I was uh, thinking that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of types of media engagement that are even more intuitively or obviously sort of uh, performative, like uh, you know, dancing at a club or, you know, singing karaoke, right? Um, and then you might say, I mean, there are certain ways you could look performatively at um, how people view television. I would suspect people watching the Super Bowl made performative uh, gestures and utterances, you know, <laughs> in many cases, right, and things like this. Um, so, uh, so is is this an idea that's that's very specific to video games? Is it broader to media? Um, uh, if it is, then uh, might the the viewers of a play also be engaged in performance? And and what what would confusion so, might that cause? Um, <laughs> So, well, in the case of, a, of the audience of a performance, uh, as I said in the, in the talk a year ago, um, they're not performers, but they do close the performance because they're interpreting what is going on. Um, in the case of the people watching a Super Bowl, um, who is watching them perform those gestures? You know, like I think that that part of, of the who is watching and like the performance needs someone who's watching it. That was what Peter Brook was saying. In the case of video games, and again, this is from, from the previous talk, um, it's interesting because we have the player, it's also the audience. We have the computer, and some people don't like this idea, but the computer is a performer that we're performing with, you know, is creating a world that we're inhabiting and we're reacting to and is reacting to what we do. So we're watching the computer perform and we're reacting to it too. And the computer reacts to what we do. So that's why the cycle of performance is probably clearer than, you know, people watching the Super Bowl and being angry and shouting. You know, the moment where if they were broadcasting it on YouTube, for example, that might be a performance. And so it's all about, you know, who's watching. Who is making sense of it? You know, like the the performers, you know, the, the the players of the Super Bowl. That's the performers. The the audience is making sense of it. An, an audience to an audience watching the performance. That's where it becomes a a performance. Does it make sense? It's kind of like very meta, but it's all about who's watching and making sense. The moment that someone is watching and making sense, that's a performance. Nelson Goodman has some great stuff on this with his one step, step, mm -hmm. and two step forms. Yeah. Thanks, Clark. Um, what was I going to say? The, um, the idea of. Microphone. Oh, yeah. The idea <laughs> of. <coughs> sorry. The idea of sort of working these traces into the world. Um, it seems something, you know, as an as a, as a illustrator and a designer is almost kind of intuitive, mm -hmm. right? Um, sort of, in a sense, removing the barriers, like a cutscene, for example, to allow for the player to, to more sort of elegantly um, interpret the world around them um, is interesting. Uh, but I'm also interested in the, the sort of real-time aspect of performance. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about, um, because I like the, the symbol, icon, indice comparison, um, you know, the player itself as being part of the performance mm -hmm. and, and, and the sort of the UI mostly being symbols and icons mm -hmm. and working, working um, those indices back into the player as far as performance. And it's, it's interesting to me because the, the, the adventure games and the hidden object games dealing with spatial storytelling or environmental storytelling, it also seems like there's 
the opportunity there to work in that mm -hmm. um, indices storytelling within the HUD because those games are so typically UI heavy. Mm -hmm. What do you see as far as the opportunities so there? It's, so it's funny because I think that adventure games, uh, I think object games do, well, less in object games, this is why I'm researching them, but adventure games, a lot of them are about reading uh, indexes, but there's not the possibility of leaving the trace, you know, actually affecting it. Um, I think, the part, as you know, uh, part of the problem is the number of assets and the number of, you know, how they're made that is makes it really difficult to actually modify the world. Um, but some of the opportunities, I think, that is, yes, you know, as I was saying before, uh, UI-wise, you know, like how are we letting players tell the story themselves? That's what adventure games don't quite do. There's not a way to talk back to the game and how we're interpreting it, particularly as detectives. And this is what uh, I'm going through the, the Sherlock Holmes games, and Sherlock Holmes games are not about that talking back. Um, so that's one of the opportunities that I'm that I'm seeing um, uh, in story-driven games in general. I mean, there are others. I don't know. Oh, one example I used to have was uh, Diablo, because one of the things that really stood out of that game is that whenever you killed something, you know, there was this blood. Like, there was so much blood that then that's how you could tell where you've been. So instead of breadcrumbs, it was blood all over. Um, and it's like, what kinds of traces can you leave that are more interesting than just a blood spatter? <laughs> or, or more interesting than, yeah. than heart icons on the top of the screen. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, that are more integrated in the world. Um, but again, you know, that, that's, that's a bit of a technological issue. I don't think that it's as huge as people would think. But, um, you know, like it's, it's, it's what are the opportunities that objects and the environment itself are leaving for, for that kind of trace? Okay, time for one more quick one. Okay, um, this is kind of returning a bit to the question of genre and genre literacy. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, like, returning a bit to the question of genre and genre literacy. Um, okay, so it seems like, and I had to miss the first half hour, so it, if this is like a totally stupid question that you t covered in the first half hour, I'm really sorry about that, but it seems like indexical storytelling works really well when it's kind of an option that it's it's like it allows the player to be able to tell a story but it doesn't ask the player it's not like the the point of the game is not to tell a story necessarily that that can be a point that the player chooses to make for themselves but that it like as in you had a picture from portal i think where it's like you can go back there but you could also never go back there and just play the game as it was intended to be played mm -hmm. um and so my question kind of, in the hidden object game and the kind of in the detective world, it seems like at least facile observation, but there are two kinds of detective novels where mm -hmm. one is the point is to find all of the clues and the detective works by finding clues better than anyone else, mm -hmm. which is like, I mean, I see a similarity with the hidden object game where the point is to just find objects and mm -hmm. you can pixel hunt all you want and find objects. But the other kind of detective story is where the detective, everyone can see the same set of clues, but the detective sees something else that no one else sees. And I see that happening in like escape the room games mm -hmm. where it's, or puzzle games where you're presented with these puzzles and everyone is presented with the same set of puzzles and you can look for hints, but like 
the point is really to just kind of try to figure out what's going on. And I'm just wondering, because there is frequently a complaint that people don't like puzzle games because they just don't like solving puzzles, it's like what, I mean, if you bring this kind of indexical storytelling where you're, you present the player with a set of clues and you ask them to construct a story, like what happens if that's the whole game and no one, like people don't like that kind of thing? Like where, where can you like put it in that people will enjoy it and also do other things? Well, first of all, when, when you make games, you don't make games for everybody. It's yeah. an option. Yeah. So at times it's like, okay, how many people do I want to appeal? How much? what is my audience in the case of games like Portal or Bioshock? It's like, well, we want to have the players who have never played a first-person game. We're going to make it easy. We're going to let them explore the space. Uh, but there are others who are very hardcore about certain things. And there are people who love hidden object games, even though you know, even the most dull only find the thing. Um, so it's not a matter of, you know, it's, it's, it's what I'm proposing here is, uh, widening in the repertoire of design vocabulary. Um, so it would depend on who you're making the game for. If your game is about just finding objects and being a janitor, even if you're called a detective, that's fine. Um, but you know, the challenge is actually widening that because it's easier to just appeal to one specific type of audience. Uh, than to have the variety of actions. Variety of actions, and this is more in the kind of practical terms, it's expensive, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of assets. So it depends on what resources you have. So that's a kind of like a practical mm -hmm. sense. Um, if I had to make a game where, but the things like that, this has been done before. So I don't know if you've played um, uh, uh, Batman Arkham Asylum. Uh, which does have a detective mode that does what you were talking about. You know, like you're in the space and suddenly you press a button and the game is telling you this is a clue. You're seeing the space differently. You're seeing the space as a detective. You have these two layers, these two modes of actually looking at the space so that if you're a player who's not interested in actually trying to find the clues, they're kind of like coaching you and giving you the scaffolding to interpret a, uh, the space and say like, Look here, this is what you have to look for. This is where the story, this is the index that you have to care about. Um, so, so that's a way to, you know, I like the detective bit, but at times I realize that I figure things out before I press the button because I'm used to doing that. But for players who do not like that, it's like, well, I'll just press, okay, I'll do that. They, we're helping them restore a specific behavior by telling them exactly what to do. And that is one range that uh, indexes can have. You know, at times, you know, how much interpretation do we need? Are we, do we depend on the player's knowledge and they have to interpret it? Or are we just telling them, look, this here, you know, like in tutorials, for example, this is what you have to do. It's very explicit, it's like there's, there's almost no room for interpretation. Clara, thanks very much. We'll stop the formal part here. And, uh,